Quest Community Church, living life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. So today, before we get started in the message, or as we get started in the message, I need to give a little credit where credit's due. Um, I got a lot of the outline points and a number of the illustrations from a message by Tim Keller on our passage today, and I just want to give him some credit for that. Uh, as we continue our series and start winding down our series on Ephesians, Paul today is going to start pulling together into a final culmination everything he's taught us and talked about throughout the book of Ephesians. But there's also going to be a hitch today for many of us, for some of us at least, uh, because Paul in this text takes a hard right turn in the eyes of many people in the Western world, and it causes a lot of us to struggle with a biblical view of faith when we look at this passage. So let's look at Ephesians 6, 10 through 13 we're going to deal with today. Paul starts out with the word finally, and we're going to turn that finally into three weeks, by the way. So... And, uh, and then we're going to have a fall kickoff series on, on, a, on the 24th of this month. I'm really excited about it. I will tell you more about that next week, but be praying for your unchurched friends. It's going to be a fantastic series to invite your unchurched friends to come to hear it. So let's get back to the text. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in, and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. So the topic of today and next week is devils and demons. And in the West... We tend to think of that stuff in horror movies, and we tend to think of that stuff largely as superstitious thinking of less informed ancestors or cultures. But Paul, in this text, is saying that everything he's taught up to this point in Ephesians is bringing us to this point of how we live life successfully and how we overcome and fight evil in our own lives and in the life of our culture around us. When he says, for your struggle is not against flesh and blood, he's not saying that evil never takes the form of flesh and blood. We know it does. We know it comes in the form of people a lot of times. But what he's saying is when we see evil in crime or in abuse or things like that, injustice in flesh and blood form, there is a spiritual evil, personal evil that is often behind that that we also need to be aware of. And his point that he's trying to make to us today is unless we recognize this reality, we will stand ill-equipped to deal with freeing ourselves from the evil that we struggle with personally, much less freeing our culture from the evil that infects our culture that so deeply, so pervasively, and so intractably. See, in the West, we struggle with this concept because we tend to be told all along that everything has a natural cause. Everything has a scientific explanation. That crime is the result of natural causes like bad psychology or bad sociological factors. We weren't raised right, so we were damaged, and as a result, we do bad things. We had a poor education, or we didn't have the opportunity that we should have had, so therefore we do poor things. Or we have a chemical imbalance or a psychological disorder and a disease of the mind, and therefore we do bad things. And certainly, those things are realities that do exist. 
But that mindset of explaining and solving everything by natural cause, as pervasive as it is in our Western world, is wearing thin. Even Andrew Del Banco, uh, a, human, a humanities professor at Columbia University, who is a self-described secular liberal, wrote a book after studying the concept of evil all throughout history. He wrote a book called The Death of Satan. And the very first line of his book reads this. It says, A gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. And he goes on to argue that we have jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. We just don't believe in that. In fact, we don't even like the idea of evil because the very idea of evil connotes value judgments and moral absolutes. And so we have chosen instead to use medical terms of dysfunction, of pathology, of disease, and we don't talk about moral terminology or evil in our culture. But Del Banco goes on as the century has gone on in his study of history and how this idea is developing in our culture today. He says it's been harder and harder for us to believe that holocausts and ethnic cleansings and serial killing and child abuse are simply bad psychological and social adjustment. Del Banco goes on to argue in saying that we have a problem in the West even defining evil, much less dealing with it because we're unable to articulate a coherent basis for morality beyond the cult of victimization and the blamable other. And, and Del Baco turns towards what became a popular movie and, and was a popular book, The Silence of the Lambs, to explain the problem. And he goes to the scene in there where Officer Starling is, first meets Hannibal Lecter. And he doesn't, she doesn't realize that he can hear what she's saying. And she says to the people around her, what happened to him to make him so twisted, so cruel? And Hannibal Lecter hears her and responds and says this, and I quote, Nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened you can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everyone, and I love this, you've got everyone in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me. Can you stand to say, I'm evil? And Del, Val Del Banco goes on to make the argument that the modern people, the modern West, cannot answer the monster's question. You know, we used to say, and we still often do, that racism is the result of lack of education and lack of culture. And yet, as we see from the last century, one of the most educated, most cultured, most psychologically sophisticated nations on the face of the earth produced the Holocaust. The West cannot account for the depth and pervasiveness of evil. And Del Banco goes on to argue, because we cannot account for it, we are captive to it. We cannot answer the monster's question. And this is the reality of where we live in our dominant cultural ideas in America today. But the reality of what Paul and the Bible are trying to lead us into doesn't have any problem defining evil. It defines evil very clearly, and we will look at that. And when you look at it into the context of all that we've talked about, about the rest of that Paul has taught us in Ephesians, it actually deals with and largely eliminates our culture's objection to even using the evil. Remember, our culture objects to evil because it's moral judgment, it's rejection, it's condemnation, and that 
whole thing largely evaporates when we understand the Bible's definition of evil in the context of what Paul has taught us about the gospel in Ephesians. See, the Bible defines evil <coughs> pardon me, as coming from two races of people, both created by God, obviously, angels and demons. It teaches that angels fell and uh, they became, we refer to them as demons. They fell into rebellion and sin, and the head of the demons is Satan, and they are personal, spiritual, supernatural beings in rebellion against God trying to influence others to be in rebellion as well. Demons in the Bible are not like God. They are not omnipresent. They're not everywhere at the same time. They are not omniscient. They can't know everything. They don't read your mind, although they're pretty good at reading our nonverbals and our words and figuring us out. And then also, evil is originate, originated in the hearts of humans when we all sinned. It has corrupted all of our hearts in deeply scarred ways where we have evil in ways that we don't even realize in our hearts. And our quest of faith is actually to allow God to redeem that and to free us of that. See, bad education, psychology, psychological problems, sociological abuse can't, can't exasperate innate evil in the heart of people, but it's not the cause. Evil is in the heart of people, and evil is aggravated by circumstances and demonic forces. See, the Bible has I think one of the most sophisticated, nuanced views of this concept of evil written anywhere, holding all the aspects of creation in dynamic tension and balance on this because someone may struggle with sin and evil because of a, a chemical imbalance or genetic rewiring, and the Bible supports that idea. And it may be that, that, that struggle may be intensified by the social structures around them because they get treated poorly. They don't get treated kindly, so it becomes intensified. And on top of that, there may be a demonic influence that fans that further into flame, and it could be one or more of those. There's a, but the promise of the gospel is that God is going to heal us in all of those areas of our life. Richard Baxter is a 17th century minister who, who uh, illustrates this biblical view, this biblical view of both evil and the cure to evil in a really wonderful way in his book on melancholy, which is the 17th century way of talking about depression. And he basically says depression can have one of four causes or a mix of them all. It could be physical. Uh, you could be overly tired. And the result would be that medicine maybe, possibly good diet or rest is the cure. The cause of depression could be psychological. It may be sadness, grief, or confusion from, from difficult circumstances. And, and what's needed for the cure there is affirmation and love and the support of the community. It could be a result of you violating your morals, of sinning, and you feel angry, you feel guilty, and, and the cure there is repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation in our relationships. And it could be the result of demonic influence trying to influence our lives. And the cure there is reorienting our worship to God and prayer and renewing our mind, taking a look at those lies that we believe about ourselves that allow that influence to even be negatively present in our life in the first place. It could be one or it could be a combination of them. There is no other place but Christianity where we can find this nuanced view of evil and the foundation to define evil without condemning and judgment. 
See, the Bible removes all moral judgment in the discussion of evil because it puts all humanity on the same plane. We're all created in the image of God. We're all worth, according to Jesus, according to God, we are all worth dying for to redeem. It doesn't matter the level that you are caught into sin. You are still considered worth dying for on God's part to redeem. We're all on the same level. Because we have all sinned, there is no one of us who is superior to anybody else. And the reality is that judgment, condemnation, putting down or rejecting another person requires that someone feel superior to them. Because of this common ground, because of God's forgiveness and acceptance and love, we still actually have the foundation to talk about right and wrong about becoming healthier, about being more whole without judgment and condemnation. You see, all other religions struggle with one of two things. They either struggle with superiority and condemnation over those who are not like them, who do not measure up, or they struggle with relativism because they don't have a foundation upon which to talk about right and wrong and about how we pursue rightness, wholeness, and health. Now... Certainly. There's many people who take the name of Christian who, who maybe take it for cultural reasons or maybe even are Christian in reality who struggle with being judgmental, right? We know that. We know that reality. But, but the truth, uh, the, that reality is simply because the truth of the gospel hasn't fully embedded it, it, embedded in our lives and we struggle with judgmentalism. We don't realize we are as sinful and accepted and loved as anybody else. And because of how sin has damaged each and every one of us, it creates almost this innate drive. It's not innate because it's created by sin, but we have this drive to earn what we get, which is counter to the gospel. The gospel is a gift. We have this drive to earn what we get, what we get, and it compels us to have a feeling of being superior. You see, that judgment, that sense of superiority is actually corrupted religion. It's not the true faith that Jesus calls us into, but it's something all of us struggle with. The Bible's definition of evil in the gospel is the firm, firmest foundation upon which to wrestle with both the reality of evil and graceful relationships. So if you're here today and you are one who struggles with including the demonic in your worldview and you just, you're not sure you should, you kind of dismiss it, let me challenge you to consider five things before you completely dismiss it. To believe in God but not in the, demon, but not in the evil spiritual realm, the demonic, sets you up to blame God every time something bad goes wrong. It sets you up to the point where you're not able to really see God as a good, loving, and kind because everything gets blamed upon Him. That's one. Two, a lot of times we uh, view people who have a demon- believe in the demonic as more simplistic than us, and we prefer to think of ourselves as more sophisticated in our view of life and reality. But, but is it possible that by not acknowledging the complexity of evil as the Bible teaches, which includes the demonic, that, and, and instead reducing it to simply natural causes, that you might actually be the one that's more simplistic. Just consider that question. Third, if you believe uh, that uh, the demonic is not something we should really pay attention to, it doesn't really exist, it shouldn't be around, then you need to wrestle with the idea that you might be a culturally narrow person. Honestly, outside of white 
Western culture largely, the large majority of the world, believes in personal spiritual evil. Are you really going to look down on every other culture, the majority of cultures, as less than you? I mean, sure, it's easy for us to think. It's really easiest for us to think. We know more facts about science. And, uh, and therefore, our ancestors' beliefs and our ancestors' experiences of reality that form those beliefs. And the majority of people in the world today and their experiences of reality that form those beliefs, we can look at them as wrong. But most cultures find the idea of a personal spiritual evil and needing to battle that something that is helpful to explain reality and helpful in the process of them becoming free of evil. Could their observations of be right and your scientific hypothesis and observations be incomplete? Fourth, isn't it inconsistent to believe in a good personal spiritual being, namely God, and to not allow for the fact that there could be evil spiritual beings. I mean, to have that argument isn't even intellectually sound. And fifth, if the Bible is right, and it is, if you don't learn to live in this reality, then you'll not be able to understand, much less defeat evil in your own life or the evil in the culture and the world around you because you won't even recognize the way to defeat it. So that's the reality of where we live right now. How do we respond and live in that reality? Well, let's start answering that question by looking at this, by understanding the methods uh, of the demonic in relation to us. Because the Bible says this, it says, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. That word schemes is actually the word from which we get the word methods. It's uh, the devil has methods, strategies, and tactics. He has a whole arsenal full of them. And a lot of people like to distill it down for discussion purposes to two errors that we believe and two strategies that uh, Satan tries to lead us into. Those first two errors that Satan tries to lead us into is to overestimate his power and to underestimate his power. Paul actually addresses this. He says, we don't struggle with flesh and blood. And that word struggle is actually a word in his day that meant hand-to-hand combat, wrestling. It was, uh, that's the most infor- intense form of battle there is, isn't it? Nobody likes to hear fixed bayonets because you know it's going to be you or them. It is the most intense, difficult experience anybody can face in battle. But he goes on beyond that and he says this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And what Paul is painting for us here is this the, the, the spiritual evil influences affecting the big picture of things, the culture-shaping things. It's, it, it's influencing rulers of this world and the powers and the ideas. And we talked about this a little bit. We alluded to it weeks ago when we talked about how culture shapes us, how we grow up in a culture we don't even realize. And we were talking about it specifically in regard to how that time, how our culture treats women as commodities for men's sexual pleasures and how that influences the way we think about ourselves and relationships. And what this is saying is that there are spiritual forces at work in concert with flesh and blood to embed and to amplify and to create whole systems of thought and attitudes that are evil. And to believe that we can change that evil in the world, in our culture, in our own society with just ideas Paul is saying is is short-sighted. So don't underestimate 
the power of the evil. But on the other hand, don't overestimate it either. Paul actually leads this passage off by saying, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And in that text, there's this expectation. There's this expectation and assumption that as a son and a daughter of God, you have all the power you need to stand and to win in this fight. It isn't a fair fight. It's like the devil bringing a knife to a gunfight, right? I mean, if you don't shoot the gun, if you don't learn to use the gun, you can certainly get harmed, right? But it's the devil bringing a knife to a gunfight. These are two equal and opposite errors that we fall into. And I'll I'll be honest, I've lived in church systems and I've personally fallen into both of these errors throughout my time following Christ. I mean, I grew up for a long time in a a setting where it was believed the devil was behind every sin, every action, every bad feeling and bad temptation you you had. And I remember one time praying for somebody for deliverance from uh, demonic influence. And and I look back on it and I go, you know what? I think that probably was just really a chemical imbalance and a psychiatric thing. We should have been referring him to a psychiatrist and to get on meds and praying for healing physically rather than praying for relief of of, of temptation from demonic. I, I remember growing up and having a couple of movements uh, back in the 70s, 80s that branded themselves under the names Healing of Memories and Inner Healing, and that's still around a little bit today, still under those monikers. And there's a lot of really great truth in those movements. But so much of the application ended up being what I would describe as superstitious, magical cures. I mean, if somebody came into counseling with a problem in marriage, it was because they had a childhood hurt that allowed demonic influence. And all you had to do was pray to get rid of that and everything was going to magically be okay. And you know what? It didn't work most of the time. And the problem with overestimating the power of Satan is that it removes all personal responsibility. You can have an anger problem, and if all you have to do is ask for the mnemonic to be cut off and you're okay, then you never have to look at your own identity. You never have to do the hard work of looking at your self-talk and your emotional coping skills. You never have to do any of the practical counseling stuff that we all learn, and you never have to take responsibility because you can just blame the devil and move on. See, healing... And spiritual growth, when we overestimate the power of the devil, just becomes magical instead of holistic. But I have to admit, within a lot of that experience, I've also seen some really powerful spiritual encounters that I've experienced. I remember moments where I witnessed and was involved in situations where there, on multiple times, were extreme anger outbursts, uh, approaching and escalating to the point where you were really concerned for your safety. And I remember people praying. I remember in my own instance praying and just taking quiet authority over the work of the enemy and it stopped in its tracks. And in some of those instances, even the person who was escalating recognized an immediate difference and they didn't even know what we were praying because we didn't do it out loud in front of them. And then I can remember years where I reacted to the abuses that I saw. And I went on and got a master's degree in counseling and I underestimated the influence of the demonic and I decided that everything could be fixed by cognitive behavioral therapy and by good education. And I I saw some good change, but I saw a lot of change that too often didn't go deep enough and didn't last. And I underestimated this aspect of evil. 
That's one of the reasons we at Quest have a value that we explicitly state of being deeply spiritual and deeply practical. Because unless we're willing to live in the tension of holding this complex definition of sin and evil and healing and how that all happens and and trust God to lead us in individual settings to sort out what really needs to happen we're going to tend to fall into one of these or the other of these errors. And it, the result will be we will find less healing ourselves for ourselves and we will find our impact on our culture being smaller. And even though Del Banco lacks the spiritual side of things and doesn't even understand and interpret that stuff that he writes about because of his secular bias, even approaching the reality of what Scripture and the people he's quoting say, he actually points to the same argument and the same tension when he says, in contemporary America, the devil and the evil the devil represents are stranded between the liberal tendency to explain heinous acts as the consequence of bad social luck and the fundamentalist hunger to demonize one's enemies. We need to walk that tension of the middle line. There's no place like the Bible's definition of of evil and the gospel to give us the tools to do that. So, next, let's look at the two strategies, the two primary strategies that, that the demonic uses to influence. And it doesn't involve the spinning of heads and 360-degree turns, and it doesn't involve the green faces and the red faces and the vomiting and all that kind of stuff. It involves, at the core, the lies we believe. Actually, the word devil means liar. And it's like this. If you, if you take a piano and you open the top and you sing a note into it, whatever note you are singing, that corresponding string will start to vibrate. The devil can't make a good person bad. They can only make a flawed person worse. worse. And he plays on what is already in you through lies. That's the reason a couple weeks ago when we read Ephesians 4 that says, Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry and do not give the devil a foothold is said. The devil stimulates talk in our heart and looks at those things, lies we believe, and makes us believe lives or amplifies lives and makes them bigger about ourselves and about God, about others, and about reality. And those lies, those strategies take two basic forms the Bible talks about, temptation and accusation. And you may not have heard this definition before, but it's a fairly common definition of the two. So temptation is when you are fed a lie that gives you too high a view of yourself. And so you do things you shouldn't do. You don't see the evil or the bad in it, or you choose not to see those things in sin, or because of repeated involvement in sin, you've hardened your conscience against the warning signs that are going off, and you walk through life saying, well, that that isn't so bad. I can handle that. I won't go down the same path of other people when I do that, like our discussion of pornography a couple weeks ago. And We end up going headlong into slavery to sin because we don't realize how vulnerable we are and the depth to which sin affects us. On the other hand, accusation is when you are fed a lie that makes you think too lowly of yourself. You self-loathe, and therefore out of that motivation you do things that you normally shouldn't or wouldn't want to do because you see your failure so much that you have a really hard time believing that God loves you. Maybe he can save you, but no, there's no way he could use me to pray for healing for somebody and actually see them 
be healed, and so I'm not bold in prayer. Or, There's no way he can work through me, so I'm not going to help lead a small group or expect that he'll ever give me a word for somebody and minister to them through me because I'm just too broken, I'm just too bad. And so you don't trust God's love, and you don't trust God's good purpose for your life. And out of that, you end up finding yourself engaging in sinful behaviors that you think are the best you deserve or they're in line with how you think about yourself in your self-loathing and they feel like appropriate because even sometimes they punish you and make you feel good in the punishment because you believe you should be in your self-loathing. See, temptation hides God's holiness and His perfection and it plays up the love of God so that evil isn't clearly seen. An accusation hides God's love and plays up God's holiness and perfection so you think too lowly of yourselves and others who fail around you. Two forms of lies. Now, next week we're going to spend a lot more time on how to win this fight, but let me just leave you with two beginning thoughts on how we win in this battle uh, today. Thought number one, you need to know the points in your life at which you are most vulnerable to demonic influence. Thomas Brooks, another 17th century minister, writes a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. You can download it for 99 cents on Kindle. I recently started reading it a few weeks ago. And he gives a long list of inventory questions about what accusation and temptation might look like for the purposes of helping us understand where we're weak. And uh, let me just give you a few and see if you relate to any of them. Under his temptation category, he talks about how in evil it tends to show us the bait and hide the hook. So you focus on short-term pleasures and you hide from yourself long-term misery. So sex with your girlfriend before marriage, it might be just something. I mean, it's fun. Sex is great. God created it to be great. And you think it's great fun, but you don't look at the long-lasting damage it does to trust in your relationship. You don't look to how not learning to show that restraint undermines the development of the character of faithfulness, which is what you really want in a good, healthy marriage. And it does damage to your future marriage. Number two, uh, evil tends to make us rationalize sin as a virtue. I'm, I'm not really greedy. I'm thrifty. I'm not a gossip. I'm just concerned. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm just culturally acceptable and socially acceptable. Number three, evil tends to amplify our struggle with the flaws of Christian leaders and causes us to want to justify our own behaviors. So we see a Christian leader sin and we think, well, they did it, so I'm okay doing it. Instead of allowing God and a personal relationship with him to really guide us, we make our own justification for behavior. Four, uh, it can, uh, evil can amplify the bitterness and tiredness we struggle with when we're dealing with suffering and difficulty and lead us to the point where we think, oh, I deserve this break. I deserve this thing. It's a really common excuse we struggle with uh, that, that men especially struggle with when they have affairs and they watch pornography. Especially really successful men a lot of times will say, no one knows how hard I work. No one knows how hard I sacrifice and with the sacrifices I make, I deserve this simple pleasure, this simple break. It's a, a, an excuse that's often made by people struggling with chemical dependency as well. Number five, evil tends to amplify showing us as Christians how bad people seem to be having great lives. And our self-talk becomes, I might as well be doing this. Playing by the rules doesn't pay off. Number six, Evil tends to amplify us comparing one part of our life to another. 
We say things like, I fail over here, but I do a lot of good over here. I, 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 I screwed this guy in this financial business deal over here, but I give to charity, so I'm good. In the extreme version, it's the mafia hitman. I kill people, but I'm good to my mom, right? He gives a number of examples about accusation. Let me just give you four of them. He gives a whole lot more than that. Talks about how uh, spiritual evil can cause us to look more at our sin than our Savior and amplify that tendency in us already. So we end up creating our identity for who we are around our sin rather than around how God created us and how God intends us to redeem us to be and how God views us through the lens of forgiveness. That's the reason why we need four to five or ten compliments or whatever anybody quotes for every one criticism because the Bible teaches us that innately... We know there's something wrong with us. So when something, a criticism is said, we focus on that, right? And that becomes our identity more than all the compliments that we hear. Number two, another second idea, we tend to ruminate on our past sins so much that we get caught sometimes in the fact that we feel like the damage of our sin from the past cannot be undone. And therefore, we never live free. We never live right in certain relationships. We never move on because we know the pain that we caused in this relationship can never be fully paid. And so every time we're around those people, we think it's appropriate that we feel sad, we feel guilty, we feel less than in the presence of those people we hurt. And we don't ever allow ourselves to be forgiven, to grow, and to move on. Number three, uh, Satan tends to amplify difficulties we're going going through and making us believe that they must be punishments. I mean, so we say things like, this wouldn't have happened to me if God were not mad at me. At least that's what we think. And when in reality God is standing there like he did with the woman at the well, like he did with the woman caught in adultery, like he did in the story of the prodigal son waiting to hug us and throw, throw his arms around us and love us, but because we misplace blame for our hardship on God, we're blind to his kindness and his desire to care for us in that difficult moment. Number four, Satan loves to isolate you in your struggles, make you feel like you're the only one, and make you think things like, if I were, if, if I were a real Christian, I wouldn't be having these thoughts and desires because real Christians don't have these thoughts, these feelings, these struggles. Do you recognize any of these as something you've struggled with in your own life? Do you face them? If so... The devil's playing you. He knows what string, what note to sing to vibrate that string in you. And Paul says, be aware of the schemes of the devil. Where does he exasperate your weaknesses or struggles the most? That's the beginning place of identifying where to get victory. What lies does he keep you believing instead of the truth of God's love and redemption and God's plan for you? A second quick thought of how we win in this battle is we're going to talk about the armor of God next week. It alludes to us here. We're going to talk more in detail next week. But the gospel is the armor. If you believe one of the two errors we talked about earlier, you either overestimate the power of evil or you underestimate or maybe even nullify it, don't believe it exists, then in either of those two views, you are forced to live like every other religion in the world. If I am just strong enough, if I'm just disciplined enough, if I live a good enough life, if I self-actualize, then I will be good and I will be a worthy person. And whether you use the term or not, what you're saying is, I can save myself. And this kind of life crushes you. 
and leaves you hollow. But if you believe the gospel, if you believe that your sin was paid for by Jesus dying on the cross and he took everything for you. You no longer have to carry that penalty. You no longer even have to consider the penalty. You no longer have to let that be part of your identity. Then you are free to walk around with two very important facts in mind that no other religion in the world allows you to hold at the same time. And that is this. You can walk around believing that my sin is indeed so bad enough that Jesus had to die for me. There's nothing I could ever do to repay it. There's nothing I could ever do to earn right standing with him. I can be utterly realistic about evil and sin. And at the same time, I can walk fully in the deeply experienced knowledge that I am absolutely fully, completely accepted and loved. And even if I had 20,000 years to do good works, I could never be more loved than I am right now. Only when you can live with those two thoughts in dynamic tension and accept them both in your life can you live the life that you want to live where you are strong, where you live life soft, open, non-defensive, loved instead of being hard and, and, and harsh and driven and you can see at the same time your sin and you're no longer crushed by it. You're no longer controlled by it. It doesn't define you any longer and you can be forgiven. Being able to hold these two truths in your heart at the same time is what destroys the power of temptation. If you're here today and you have never decided to make that move to accept Christ, or if you've maybe been around the church this whole time and you've always seen it as a way to be morally good, that's not what the gospel is. The gospel is accepting these two truths, the kind of love that I just described, the kind of reality that I just described, and being freed by the power of God. And I want to invite you to make that step today. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for everyone here who is thinking right now, man, I want that kind of love and I want that kind of freedom. I want to be able to live with the reality of those two things. Lord, I pray that your spirit would come to each and every one right now. And for those who have lived this whole time thinking that faith and and Christianity is about being morally good and performing, Lord, I pray that you'd help them right now. Just come to you, and you can do this in your own words. Just come and say to God, "I, I repent of my sin, and thank you for your forgiveness. I am unable to save myself. Thank you for saving me. And just let his spirit come to you right now in a whole new way that gives you a whole new perspective and power to deal with evil in your own life, to deal with the struggles that you continue to wish you could overcome, but you continue to fall to. And Lord, for each one of us who, uh, even as followers of you, still walk this struggle, still find ourselves succumbing to temptation and accusation. Lord, would you point out the areas today that you want to bring freedom to and help our thinking change? But Lord, come to us and help us experience your power in that because it's your power that frees us from evil. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you just take time with these two songs? I think they're very appropriate for where we're at in our thoughts right now and let God continue to speak to you as we worship. So where do we start? We talked about the fact this morning that 
the influence of the demonic in our lives, if, when we experience it, exasperates what's already there. You ever had one of those times where you swore, you just swore up and down, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to fall prey to this. And then you did. Maybe it was a day that you didn't get any sleep because your kids kept you up all night. Maybe you got on a 3.30 flight that morning and you had a 15-hour day and now you're tired and alone in a hotel room. Maybe Maybe it's that. Or maybe it's something else. If you come to those moments where you're struggling with that kind of a thing, All you have to do is say, God, thank you that you gave us victory. He gives you authority. You give me victory over any influence of Satan, the demonic, in my life. And just praise him for that. Declare that victory. And then turn to praise. You won't feel like it because you're feeling like something else. But that's part of what we're going to talk about next week. It says put on the armor of God. Sometimes we have to pick up faith and we have to do it. We don't feel like it. We have to prepare ourselves. We have to put it on. That's as simple as the battle is. If you're here today and you want some prayer for healing or there's something in this message that, you, uh, that, that sparked you and you'd like somebody to pray with you about it, there'll be people over here to talk with you about that. If you today, for the first time, decided, you know what, I'm going to stop treating this Christianity thing as a moral performance thing and I'm going to have a relationship with God and I'm going to accept that kind of love, then I'd love to talk with you more about that and help you get on a good course in your spiritual growth. God bless. Have a great week. Thank you for listening. Join us at Quest as we walk with one another in friendship while discovering the reality and goodness of God together. For more information and service times, visit us online at gotoquest.org.